Welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast, brought to you by the Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory at the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. It is our goal to advance the understanding of honeybees and beekeeping, grow the beekeeping community, and improve the health of honeybees everywhere. In this podcast, you'll hear research updates, beekeeping management practices discussed, and advice on beekeeping from our resident experts, beekeepers, scientists, and other program guests. Join us for today's program, and thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this segment of Two Bees in a Podcast. Today, we have Rosanna Punko, who completed her master's degree in the Department of Entomology at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, Canada. She is currently an apiculture inspector for the Bee Health Assurance Team in Alberta, Canada. And I'm really excited to have her on today because she just published a paper that honestly, the the beekeepers here in Florida probably don't know much about. Uh, So she did a paper and it was looking at the epidemiology of Nosema and the effects of indoor and outdoor wintering on honeybee populations. And so uh, she is in Canada. So I'm really excited to speak to her about the different climates that you all have up there. But Rosanna, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. All right. So I got a little ahead of myself talking about the indoor and outdoor wintering of honeybees. But before we get into that, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself and how you got into honeybee research? Yeah. So I grew up in in rural Alberta and I ended up going to do my undergraduate degree at the University of Calgary. And I needed a summer job, as most students do. And I ended up working for a commercial beekeeper close to my hometown. That kind of ended up leading me into Government of Alberta job, where I worked on a varroa research projects. And then that led me into my master's research, which I did my paper on. I always like to hear people's backstories, how they got into bees. It's oftentimes finding it through college or just being a beekeeper themselves. And, and you and your colleagues did a really interesting series of uh, projects on a topic with, you know, Amy already highlighted that folks here in Florida aren't so familiar with. And I would argue, you know, around the world, if you keep bees in a warm climate, this might be a foreign concept to them. But you were specifically looking at overwintering colonies indoors. And talk and, and looking at how that might impact a number of parameters. Of course, you guys were looking at Nozema, et cetera. We're going to talk about all that forthcoming, but to get our listeners ready for our discussion on your research, could you introduce us to the topic of overwintering colonies indoors? What is it? What does it involve? You know, I've got so many questions around it. What temperature do you use? What humidity? When do you move the colonies in? All of that type of stuff. Yeah, for sure. So indoor wintering is typically a a colder climate um, choice. And basically for, it's kind of how it sounds, you know, indoors, you move your colonies uh, into a building and you keep it at around four to seven degrees Celsius, which I looked up is 39 to about 44.5 Fahrenheit. Uh, and it's kept dark, and then you have a, an air circulation and a ventilation system to, to help move things around. And so in, in uh, the prairie area, colonies are moved in around uh, a late October, so they're kept out pretty late in the, the year for here, um, but that's when temperatures start to get um, a little bit colder, 
And then it's around April that they'll take them back out of the buildings. And so the main difficulties with indoor wintering is that you're putting your colonies, a whole lot of them, in a building and they're producing heat and water vapor and carbon dioxide because they're respirating. And so you got to remove all these kind of bribe products through your ventilation system, you know, bringing out uh, the old air from the inside and uh, taking outside air in. And so, um, you know, with the temperature outside, it's kind of always fluctuating. So you need a system that can handle a reasonable variety of outdoor temperatures, you know, uh, sometimes it is 10 degrees outside. And so you need to be uh, ventilating quite a lot because the heat from your bees is actually making the building too hot. Uh, and then they're too active and they're respirating more and, and that kind of thing. But then when it gets really, really cold, you need to, you know, still ventilate the water vapor and the carbon dioxide, but you don't want to lose a lot of heat because then you have to heat it again, uh, you know, with a, with a furnace. And then for like humidity, it's like 50, 70%. So, but bringing in the cold air and then sending out the other will, will reduce the humidity if it gets too high. That's so interesting. So I think you just made a point that I've never thought about before. Just the fact that you know, you're, you're moving them indoors to keep that constant temperature, which you're trying to keep it a little bit warmer, which is really funny because four to seven degrees is a little bit warmer at that point, um, four to seven degrees Celsius. Right. And so then the bees are heating and they're getting warm to the point where then you have to bring that back down and you have to make a, a little bit cooler. So I, I don't think I thought about that fine line, like right in between of keeping that constant temperature. So that's pretty interesting. New to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there was research done. The reason why, and I, I also thought that when I first kind of was looking into it, is that that's a lot warmer than I thought it'd be maybe closer to zero or, you know, like something like that. Um, but the research that was done on it long, long time ago was um, looking at how much consumption of like energy that the colonies were doing. And so if it's too warm, right, the colony is like super active and, you know, they're consuming their food stores, which, you know, if they need to survive like, you know, a nearly six month long period, you kind of need them not to consume much or else you have to feed right. them and that costs money. But if it gets really cold, then they're having to be more active just to stay warm. So they're, you know, they're consuming more because they're, you know, using more heat. So that what they found is that four to seven degrees is like the perfect point where they're conserving as much energy as possible. Well, I'm going to go a little off script here. How did people think about or discover doing this in the first place? Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it, I guess in, in the Canadian winters, especially in colder areas, I guess you get these super cold temperatures and these fluctuations. So maybe the original idea was if we can just stabilize that, we can improve colony survival. You just mentioned also that there was research done on, done on it some time ago. So like, when did this process start? I'd have to think about it a little bit, but I know that, um, you know, once upon a time when people were getting bees, I wouldn't know what year, but early on when people were having bees, you just had bees and then they died. You know, and then you bought bees next year. You there was no such thing as overwintering at all in in Canada. Um, but then, you know, obviously that was a cost, and people 
you know, I think it really started with just beekeepers wanting to make it happen. And so they were, you know, doing their own experiments, figuring out how much insulation, um, you know, for your outdoor wintering, but even people were wintering their bees in like uh, cold cellars, you know, in the ground, um, you know, if you only had a couple of them. And so I think, you know, that kind of beekeeper experimentation, you know, kind of led people to, you know, researchers and actually, you know, investigating it themselves on how to create these systems. And, and there's great, you know, books exactly explaining, okay, if you have this many colonies per square foot in your building, you need this ventilation system to do this and, and just all these things. So I, I have so many questions about indoor overwintering just because it's just such a foreign concept. So when the bees actually are placed inside, uh, is there like, I don't know, is, is there an entrance reducer? Are they closed in? Are they able to fly in and out? Like, what does that look like? So there is a little bit of flight usually, I think, because bees will just leave, especially if it gets warm, but for the most part, um, or it's not necessarily they fly, but I think like they'll be end up being dead bees on the ground, but it might be even just more from, from cleaning if it is right. warmer, you know, pushing out the dead bees. And so they just fall on the floor, but it's kept dark. Um, so they generally will not, you know, or they use the red right. light. Right. So they shouldn't fly. And then also because it's cold, it kind of induces that clustering behavior where they're not really interested in going anywhere because they're sure. like, it's, it's a little too chilly. I know that's how I am when I, when I think it's cold and it, that's like 55 degrees Fahrenheit here. So, <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about your research. So the project that we've invited you on to speak about today. So you were looking at overwintering colonies and the impacts of nosema loads and survival. So can you tell us just a little bit more about some of the goals that you had for your research and then maybe a little bit on uh, the methods of how you conducted your study? Mm -hmm. So one of the main points of the study was that nosema serrani uh, is becoming a lot more prevalent than uh, nosema apis uh, worldwide. And so it was important for me to kind of investigate that further because we've been using like the seasonal trends of uh, an apis abundance to kind of time our treatments, you know, for fumagillin. And just a reminder what that seasonality looks like. It's kind of a, a spring peak that's quite high and then it drops low in the summer. And then usually there's a smaller peak in the fall and then it kind of just builds up slowly over the winter. And so some studies have been looking at, you know, does Nosema serrani have the similar uh, seasonality? And there's been some, some mixed reviews uh, depending on the area. So I kind of wanted to look at it for, you know, the prairie region in particular, just to see what was going on. And so how I ended up doing that was I had 32 colonies uh, that I followed over a two year period, which was June, 2017 to April, 2019, which had two winters in it. So that was great. And then I just sampled them every two weeks, uh, except during the winter for Nosema, determined their spore levels. And then I also uh, determined the Nosema species just to confirm what was infecting them uh, in each of the apiaries at two periods. So that was kind of the, the first part was looking at the seasonality. But then I wanted to take it a little bit further and look at some winter type related um, environments. And so uh, winter is pretty stressful for bees, you know, they, they can't go out and forage, there's no food, they kind of have to rely on keeping themselves warm. And so 
it's it's yeah it's just really stressful for them and one of the things that ends up also happening is that they're not really able to to defecate like they normally would because they they do the the cleansing flights where they fly out and then they defecate and they come back in but when it's so cold you just can't do that or you die and so what they end up doing is that they store their their feces into the, in their abdomens and then they they defecate later but then if they're infected with nosema presumably the spores are just replicating and building up inside of them which is you know making the infection worse and it's possible as well that um because they're not able to defecate eventually you can't hold it anymore and they end up defecating within the colony which then in the spring they need to clean that all up so that they can rear their brood and store their honey and so they're consuming those spores in the feces when they are cleaning and then that just spreads it throughout the whole colony and so i wanted to look at winter management and as well as you know the temperatures in different locations to kind of see how that would maybe impact nosema and so i in alberta i looked at edmonton which is more central alberta but i'm just going to call it the north for simplicity and then i had another location called rainier which is near south of calgary south east-ish and I'll just call that the South. And so in Alberta, we have the uh, the Rocky Mountains that that uh, are mostly in the South, Southwest side of the province. And we get Chinook winds is what we call them, but they're basically a warming wind that comes over and it makes things a little bit nicer in the winter for the South. And Edmonton gets a little bit of it, but not as much. And so the South gets a lot more warm days, which could enable these cleansing flights to happen potentially in the winter. And so to kind of look at north-south, I basically split those 32 colonies in half and I had two apiaries in each location that had half those colonies. So then the next part was the indoor-outdoor wintering. So for the outdoor wintering, wrap them up in a wrap uh, that's like insulated. It's kind of uh, like an insulation with um, some kind of outer layer to kind of protect it from the moisture of the snow and they can still fly out of those winter wraps so they're kind of kept nice and warm and then they can fly out and do their cleansing flights if the temperature is fine whereas we were kind of discussing with indoor wintering you got a nice stable temperature but you can't fly so i was kind of like which is better you know will these cleansing flights help relieve nosema and make it better or is it that stable temperature that is really better off i ended up you know, in addition to the, the two locations I had, each apiary in each location, one was in indoor, indoor wintering and the other was a outdoor wintering. So that kind of covers my, my winter questions related to Nosema. And then finally, just to kind of see, you know, is Nosema even a problem? You know, uh, I looked at how it affected the colony in terms of its population and survival as well as a commercial viability because even if your colony survives right if it has a very little amount of bees it's not really going to be super productive and so what i did is i kind of measured adult population once a month from from april to september and then uh at the after winter I determined whether the colony uh, was dead, so no bees, no queen, or it wasn't viable, which would be less than four frames of bees. From that, I looked at the probability of mortality or non-viability after winter uh, as it was influenced by an average nosema abundance.
So that's a very involved experimental design. You had a lot going on, a north to south region, and then you had outdoor and indoor overwintering of colonies in both of those locations, measuring all of these parameters. So could you give us an indication of the results that you found? What were the types of trends that you were seeing in both locations, as well as indoor versus outdoor overwintering? Yeah, so when we did the the kind of overview of the seasonality of things, um, we found a, a slightly different trend than for uh, Nosema apis. And so Nosema serrana basically had a high spring abundance. Uh, we found that it kind of peaked in around May, uh, but then it had low levels basically for the summer and the fall. And so that was um, certainly interesting and I think could impact some stuff. Uh, I didn't end up finding that there was a difference. There was no difference between uh, the north and the south, and there could be a couple reasons for that. But I think it was just um, that they're not that different. Like Edmonton does get a little bit of those warmer days as well. Um, so maybe if it was further north or in just a different place, then maybe it could have been different, but I didn't find it in um, this study. So I didn't end up finding a super uh, consistent effect of wintering method on Nosema. I didn't really find this interaction with Nosema, but I do have some suspicions. But I did find that there was an increased survival of colonies uh, when it wintered indoors compared to outdoors. And also that following winter, that their population buildup in the spring was much quicker. So they got to a peak a lot sooner than the outdoor. Eventually outdoor caught up, but getting that spring peak a little bit earlier for the population, I think could you know benefit um, your honey production because then you have all the bees you need right at the, you know, as early as possible. I do want to ask you a question about that. So you said that, that survival was better when they were overwintered indoors. So um, I want to broaden that idea a little bit. So survival was better. Did the colonies also look better? And based on what you just told me, I have a sneaky suspicion that you'll tell me, yes, given that their population buildup was quicker, but they survived, more of them survived and they were stronger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. okay. So it, it seems like there are a lot of factors. There are a lot of things that you examine. And so, you know, between overwintering indoors versus outdoors, which method do you think is better for reducing the impact of Nosema infection? So like I kind of said before, we have the indoor, which is like the stable temperatures, but you can't do the cleansing flights versus outdoors where you can do those cleansing flights, but now you're exposed to all kinds of extreme temperatures from really warm to really cold. And so based on my results, it seems like the, the mitigation of the temperature stress part um, through indoor wintering may have affected the impact of Nosema infection on colonies more than any benefits that would have been associated with a cleansing flight. And I think part of the reason for that is that those flight opportunities, when it's warm enough that they can get out there, they're kind of random. Sometimes they come earlier, sometimes they come later. But they're also really short-lived. It could be just, you know, two days. And so it might not be enough time for them to kind of move into doing those flights. Uh, and then even within my study, the two-year period that I was looking at, one time in March, um, there, were, there were no days above 10 degrees. But then the other year, there was 11 days. So there's this huge range that it's just not reliable enough, I think, to use it as a method for um, reducing your Nosema abundance. 
this is all very interesting again, because, you know, we're doing this podcast here out of the university of Florida and it's just so foreign to me to think about these temperatures that these bees are encounter- encountering where you are in Canada. And I know when I'm in Europe and other places around the world where folks are having to overwinter in much colder climates, they talk about the impact of, you know, crowding bees on Nozema. What you've outlined is very clear, very straightforward. It kind of reinforces some of the beliefs I had about Nozema. I do want to maybe kind of turn and look a little bit uh, again at this idea of overwintering indoors, though. You mentioned how it works. You mentioned some of the impacts that you saw on colonies, specifically from the Nozema's perspective with overwintering indoors. I just want to ask a little bit about the feasibility associated with it. You know, the size of the rooms that they need, the cost, the resources, the difficulties. I mean, do you have beekeepers in Canada flocking to this method? Is it something that most do? Is it 50-50? I mean, and also, I'm just curious, do you think it would be useful for folks who are not in cold climates? Maybe something to allow bees to have a stable winter. I I just broadly am asking about your Mm -hmm. thoughts associated with this kind of overall. Yeah, so in Canada, the usually we do like a survey, and so we kind of know it as like a number of colonies um, that are done to one method or another. Um, some beekeepers do both, that kind of thing, or one or the other. But um, in terms of the number of colonies that are put in one method or another, it varies by province. So actually in Alberta, only about 17% of all colonies are wintered indoors, so a, quite a small percentage. Um, But in Manitoba, where I did my master's research, um, it's just two provinces over. uh, And it's more like a 50-50 scenario, um, which probably is more related to like that we get, you know, it's pretty cold in Alberta, but we get a little bit of Chinook. So it's maybe not so terrible. But when I was living in Manitoba, it would just be minus 30 for, you know, several weeks (laughs) with with no reprieve. And so... um, it you makes make it sound so more... inviting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but so there's, it's overall, I'd say it's not super popular. I know in Quebec they do, it's like closer to 70%. I'm not completely sure what the reason is for that, but because um, I don't think it's, it's not necessarily as cold there, but um, it does vary quite a bit. So in Alberta, uh, it doesn't really seem like it's a huge interest to people. Um, I think it could definitely be cost. Um, I've never really looked into what a building costs, but uh, like you kind of said, it's probably expensive. You know, you need to create a whole structure and have, you know, heating and ventilation and all these systems, you know, you'd probably want to have it all, you know, um, you know, properly regulated. So you don't have to go there and and change the dial when you think it's too hot. So, you know, that's a lot of systems that are just, you know, going to have so much upfront cost. Whereas, you know, compared to just buying winter wraps, you know, there's an upfront cost to that too, but it's, I would assume much, much less. Um, Something else that I think you may not even think about, you know, you do have to drive out to the yards to put your winter wraps on, but if you're going to be moving them into an an indoor building, you need to, to pick them up and carry them away. And so, you know, picking up colonies individually just doesn't seem like a really reasonable thing to do. And so I believe that most people who do do indoor wintering have like a, a, you know, a proper forklift that can navigate, you know, rough terrain and pick up pallets of bees and put them on a truck. But, you know, that's something that gets stuck. That's something that, you know, costs more money, uh, that kind of thing. And then there's just also like 
this risk and anxiety, I think, surrounding it that puts people off of it a little bit. Um, you know, some bee beekeepers think it's kind of too risky because it's very much, a, you know, all your eggs in one basket, right? If something goes wrong in that building, that's that's all your colonies, that's all your, you know, your cost and investment, you know, potentially damaged. And so, um, you know, that, that, that scares people, whereas, you know, just kind of putting them, scattering them about and just hoping for the best just is a little bit more, um, you know, a little less anxiety ridden for them. I also think like, you know, with the wintering building, it's also really much in your control. Whereas, you know, when you think about, I put my colonies outside, I wrap them, mother nature is just going to do what she wants and I have no control. And so you can kind of just be like, it is what it is. But, you know, when you have them in, in the building, you're just thinking about everything that could go wrong and that, you know, you're the one responsible for, for what does happen. Um, I know my supervisor, he, he does his, uh, all his uh, experimental colonies indoors. And he's like, he's like, you know, I'm doing it. And he's like, and even, even I'm just like, I can't wait to get them out. I can't wait to get them out. <laughs> well, the funny thing is I always kind of joke around saying that, you know, beekeepers who have a true winter, you know, they're just not really, they're just hanging out during the winter. Right. I mean, not really doing much because they get a break and that's just, that's just obviously not true. Um, there are just so many other things that, uh, you have to maintain and, and think about. So that said, okay. So what are some other further implications of your work for beekeepers? So when I looked at the, uh, probability of colony mortality, I did end up finding some interesting results and so in uh canada in general and in alberta we kind of have this recommendation that you need to treat for your nosema with fumagillin in the spring and in the fall and that was you know based on the nosema seasonality and i think there was this perception that treating in the fall would be the thing that affected your winter mortality the most right you reducing your nosema going into the winter that's the period uh you know coming right before it and so, and even that made sense to me, but my results ended up showing that the average spring nosema abundance actually increased the probability of colony mortality the following winter. And so based on that, I think it's gonna be actually that that spring treatment, reducing your nosema in the spring would actually improve your winter survival. And that kind of makes sense since we found that nosema abundance was highest in the spring. So that's the part where you need to hit it. It's interesting to hear that you guys are treating with fumagillin. I know a lot of beekeepers do here in the States as well, and maybe some other areas around the world. When we, when I've done work, when I first got University of Florida, I, I could not reduce spore loads with, with fumagillin. And it was probably related to the period of transition with, between Apis and Serana. But, but I do have a question regarding it. So you guys feel like you get reasonable control. And then secondly, I want to ask, you know, based on your study, if you were a beekeeper and had 100 colonies, would you overwinter indoors? So most people do. I don't know how most people feel about the control, but I'll give you a little uh, sneak peek. But so part of my master's research, I also did look at um, fumagillin treatment in the spring and fall and whether it was whether it was reducing spore load. And I did find that it was. Um, I did end up doing my treatment, I think, a little too late in the spring, so I don't think I really got to see um, the effects I wanted to, um, which, you know, like uh, here I found that the peak was kind of in May and I was treating more closer to, 
June just due to setting up the experiment and that kind of thing. But I was like, I, I do believe that if I could have gotten in there in like, or, you know, late April and treated them, I could have knocked it down so much more. And then that would have really affected like my population and that kind of thing afterwards. So I think it definitely has, uh, I think Fumagillin does work. Um, overall but it is very difficult depending on the spore load and, and all those conditions uh for the indoor wintering uh it is it is a bit of a trade-off you know there's basically this huge expense but um you know and i think there is more work that needs to be done to determine if there really is this interaction between wintering method and nosema but i do think that indoor wintering does have uh several benefits um, you know, in my study, I found that mortality was reduced overall and um, that populations were getting bigger. But even other studies uh, in Canada have shown that when you have colonies that have high levels of parasites or pathogens, that they just are more likely to survive if wintered indoors. And so I think with, you know, all the things that colonies have to deal with, whether it's Varroa or viruses or Nosema, that indoor wintering just seems to help bring down the stress related to those, those pathogens. So we're leaning towards a yes. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, if you can afford it, for sure. For Nosema, I don't know if there's necessarily a benefit for indoor wintering in a non-cold climate, but I have heard... Um, mentioned that in terms of varroa management that maybe inducing um, rather than having an indoor building where you know you're warming it up obviously you wouldn't need to do that but you want to be actually cooling it down that you could basically create a fake winter that would create um, a broodless period which would then help with a little bit of controlling your varroa population growth and maybe help with treatment and that I don't know if it's necessarily more feasible than, let's say, creating a brood break with just caging the queen, but it is something that um, other researchers have kind of said that could be a potential benefit. All right. Well, I'm really excited and happy to hear that there's research going on with indoor and outdoor wintering. Thank you so much, Rosanna, for being on our podcast today and sharing information about your research. It's been a pleasure. All right, everybody, that was Rosanna Punko, who completed her master's degree in the Department of Entomology at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, Canada, and who is currently the Apiculture Inspector for the Bee Health Assurance Team in Alberta, Canada. Thank you for listening to this episode of Two Bees in a Podcast. All right, Jamie. So, I mean, after, after that episode, I feel like, and I've said this before, but I feel like such a wimp now, you know, I'm just mm -hmm. like, like the bees can survive outdoor wintering. They, they now have indoor wintering, which is really awesome. But like as a beekeeper in Florida, you know, we just don't have to think about those things here in our state. Right. And so, uh, what were your thoughts on the episode? Yeah. You know, first of all, the thing that impresses me is how cold it gets in Canada <laughs> it's no, like, I know. In Florida where it's warm all the time. It's amazing to me that bees can survive that. But second of all, I only heard about overwintering indoors a few years ago. I don't know, three to four years ago, but man, mm -hmm. since I have heard about it, it just comes up and comes up and right. comes up in beekeeper circles increasingly. So I start to see a lot of papers published on this topic. Mm -hmm. And, and I know that it's something that we've heard maybe because our 
the U.S. proximity to Canada, but I know that they're going to do some research in kind of warmer states in the U.S., and I've heard of colleagues in other places around the world talk about it. So it really seems to be one of those things that's gaining steam. It was neat to hear Rosanna talk about, you know, the temperature range that need to be met, needed to be met, and that's what was in my mind. But then she talked about, well, you've also got to cycle air out because it can get too warm, the carbon right. dioxide can get too high, and all that was really fascinating to me. And I couldn't help but think what further implications does this have for overwintering colonies you know in general you know a lot of plants for example have to have so many chill hours before they'll before they'll bloom well i mean what if that's the case for right. honeybees even in warm areas maybe right. they need to have a period of cold in order to you know x y and z and so it's really neat to me where this all might be heading in the future well, so I think one of the questions that I had, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, Nosema is a fungal spore, right? I mean, it's it's a fungus. Is that right? That, that is correct. It's a single cell fungus. Okay. Well, you know, when we're talking about the temperatures and how being indoors actually decreased the, the spore count, it, I was just thinking like, usually fungal spores develop in warmer climates, right? I mean, is that true? You know, they need you know, moderate temperatures and, and moisture. And of course, that's a very big overgeneralization. You right, get right. zillions of fungal, um, fungi, they grow all over the place. But in this particular case, of course, the bees have it in their gut and they're staying in a cluster themselves. So they are staying warm and even when it's cold outside. So that might can further promote it. But I often describe Nozema, and maybe this is completely wrong, but I often describe it almost like the, the bee version of cholera, right? It just builds up in their system. They're slammed close together. They're defecating um, right around themselves because they can't get mm -hmm, outside to mm -hmm. defecate. It ends up in their mouths as they're trying to clean the hive. Or if it just, it just, just, it spreads a lot like what I think of some of the human dysentery related pathogen spread. So it's a really bad thing. I think the concern I have most about it is uh, how to control it. You know, right. for every study that shows that uh, the fumagillin as a treatment works, there's a study that shows it didn't. And, you know, Dr. Cameron Jack in our own lab has talked about Nozema a lot and, and he's seen similar results. So it was really intriguing to me to hear Rosanna talk about the fact that most Canadian beekeepers use fumagillin and, and believe that it's worth it and, and see an impact from it. And that's encouraging to me. But then I think about the times and the data sets where that shows that maybe it wasn't efficacious under certain situations and there's no fallback plan, right? There's no, there's nothing sure. behind that to help out. So it's, it's an interesting disease. It was really interesting that Nozema apis was the predominant species right around the time I got hired at UF, you know, around mm -hmm. 2006. And now it's completely Nozema serrana. That's what everyone around the world talks about. And I don't know, it's just an intriguing thing. This idea of overwintering indoors by itself is interesting. Nozema by itself is interesting. You put the two together and it's really neat to see uh, where research on these topics are, are, is headed. Yeah, definitely. So Jamie, I hear that fecal streaking is a sign of Nosema. Is that, is that true? So that has historically been related to Nosema apis, but I've uh, seen some people even call into question, does Nosema promote that at all? In fact, when you, in the old days, when we used to teach about Nosema, we, we taught about Nosema apis and one of the signs of infection, we would always say is fecal streaking on the mm -hmm, face of mm -hmm. the hive. You know, the bees get out on the first warm day and the moment they see sunshine, they defecate. So you get this fecal streaking. But like I said, I've, I've seen uh, authors call into question that correlation, if, if that's really what's causing it. But number two, I have not commonly heard that that is associated with Nozema serrata. Okay. It's not something people usually mention with Nozema serrata. <laughs>
It's everybody's favorite game show, Stomp the Chump. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the question and answer segment. So, Jamie, the first question we have, this person is asking specifically about Sertan. Um, I assume that that's a product for wax moth control. So can you talk a little bit about what it is and what it's supposed to be used for? <laughs> I feel a little I'm like, I here. have no yeah. idea. <laughs> Here's the deal, Amy. I, I think I said it in our last Q&A. You and I have um, the advantage of being able to see the whole question because people never just ask us a question. They always tell a story and then they right. put the question somewhere in that story. And so we, you know, you and I work to condense the questions just to kind of spit them out when we're doing this Q&A. But I have the background knowledge of this question, knowing that essentially someone was saying, well, you guys talk about wax moth control. They never talk about certain. Why is that? You know, OK, so I feel a little guilty not talking about it a lot, but I'm going to be completely honest here. Sertan was something that existed when I was keeping bees as a young boy. And then it kind of went off the market for a while. And I guess I just didn't know that it had come back. And so within the last year, I'd been made aware that it is that it's back available. And so it's just my lack of familiarity with the product that that has kept me from often bringing it. Now, you and I, Amy, we can't endorse products. We can only talk about them right in our position so i'm going to talk about how this works and then at, basically at the end they say if this is something you want to try give it a try if it's not that's okay too so essentially here's the idea wax moths eat wax and we want to stop that from happening and if you've heard me talk about wax moth control in the past i talk about freezing combs i've talked about paradichlorobenzene or wax moth crystals i've talked about stacking combs in sheds that are kind of open that have a lot of light and airflow because wax moths don't like this so they'll try to stay away from those combs. those those kinds of things or storing combs storing supers of combs on strong colonies so the bees can keep the wax moths off you know the typical things that you guys out there might have heard me talk about with wax moths control well there's this other thing that you can do as well this product that's available at least here in the U.S. maybe I know you we've got a lot of international listeners as well so I'm, I'm not privy to where all of this is labeled for use. But in the U.S., you can use a product called Sertam. It's also got another name. It's B402. But the premise behind this is that it uses something called Bacillus thuringiensis, which the world knows as BT. And Bacillus thuringiensis, Bacillus is the genus, thuringiensis is the species. It is a species of bacteria that's found in nature that is a is prominently used to control moth or beetle pests and there are different strains of bt and those different strains are better or for work or worse for different insects so for example there are some strains that work well against moth caterpillars there are strains that work well against beetle larvae and depending on what you're trying to target that would dictate the strain of BT. And how this works is that BT produces a toxin that kills, in this case, the wax moth, but in other cases, other moths or a beetle larvae, things like that. And so BT would be considered a biological control. You spray this stuff on whatever you're wanting to protect. And when the target organism eats this stuff, it gets the BT in its body. And then it dies from the toxicity of that compound that the BT produces. And one of the amazing things about BT 
is that the compound it produces, depending on the strain, is remarkably targeted. In other words, it kills what it kills, but is essentially harmless mm -hmm. to what it doesn't kill. So BT used for wax moss in this case are very, is very toxic to wax moss, but does essentially nothing to honeybees. And BT is used, BT strains are used all over to control all sorts of pests, but we're talking specifically about Sertan, the product Sertan that uses BT. Of course, any product that you use that's labeled for use like this one, you have to follow the label. The label's the law. You have to do what the label says. But the premise behind it is you spray it on the combs. And when you store the combs, if wax moths go in there and the caterpillars try to eat it, they're going to eat this stuff and die and you'll get no wax moth damage. Again, you need to follow the label. I have never tested it, but I will tell you, I've read a lot of stuff online since I've had to answer this question a fair amount recently. And it looks like it has a high efficacy when used according to label. I will tell you as well, I was recently speaking at a bee club, a state bee club here in the United States uh, for a state outside of Florida. And in the goodie bag, they actually gave us uh, some of this. And so the first thing I did when I came back to the lab is give it to our lab manager, Chris Oster, and said, Chris, you know, I'd love for you to treat a stack of supers with this product, leave a stack of supers open, and let's just see. Uh, what wax yeah. moths do. And we're we're going to do that. But it is something that's available for use. You'd need to follow the label. And that's kind of how it works. It's based on the use of BT. Isn't it like the caterpillars eat it and their stomach kind of explodes? Yeah, it, they basically it goes into <laughs> them. and it, Yeah, it causes problems for them. That's exactly right. Very cool. Okay. So the second question we have for today is about Apigard. And so this beekeeper was using Apigard and within two weeks or so, it just completely solidifies. So, you know, when they put it in, it's a gel and then it, it solidifies after a couple of weeks. And so this person is basically wondering, I mean, I guess one, is that a problem? And two, is that a problem? And does it still work? <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm only Google, uh, Googling. I'm Googling. That's what happens when you get Google and Googly. taking over the word. I'm only giggling <laughs> because every time I get questions like this, I feel a little nervous to answer them because I'm not really a formulation chemist and it's, it gets, it gets tricky. Okay. So Apigard is basically an essential oil or thymol based product that comes in a gel. So the thymol is impregnated into this gel this gel is then administered to a colony according to label. The bees get exposed to this gel. There's a little bit of uncertainty, absolute certainty at least, understanding how this kills vir Varroa, but that only that it does. Maybe the bees get coated in it. Maybe their activity with it uh, causes direct exposure to the mites. Maybe it's the scent of this stuff in the colony that causes the problem. We don't exactly know exactly know at least how it works, only that it does. And so my answer to this question is going to be very presumptuous. If the mode of action requires the bees to get into this gel and remove it, they, in other words, contact it and have it on them and the, mm -hmm. the mites have to contact, then I can imagine a situation that it drying up could be a problem because it removes from the system that potential exposure route. Right. If, on the other hand, its mode of action is purely um, odor, then it drying up should not be a big problem. Now, the questioner said, and the, the current labeled product, I believe, says you administer it you know, one way now, and then two weeks later, you come back and apply it again. And so they're essentially saying after that second application, they're noticing 
that there's still some dried up gel in the container. So all you can do is follow the label. If the second, if the label says after the second treatment, you know, you take it out two weeks or whatever the label says, you, you follow it. If there's product left over, you're still kind of required to follow the label. Right. This is why we always emphasize that you should do a mic check after treatment to make sure the treatment worked. So, so what I would say is it's hard for me to answer this question just like right off the bat, because it would depend on how this product works and the mite loads beforehand and all these other things. But you can answer that question for sure yourself by sampling varroa populations after treatment to see if you achieve the, the, the desired treatment level that you wanted. And that would be a more appropriate way to answer the question maybe than kind of me speculating that it would or wouldn't work. My guess is if you open that packet and administered it to a colony today and two weeks later, there's some in there that's dry, that it, that it was probably gelatinous for a long enough amount of time to achieve maximum efficacy, mm -hmm. that it probably did its thing. But the only way to know with certainty is to sample Varroa after you treat to see if the populations were reduced to the level you wanted them to be reduced. Yeah. And another thing I didn't mention when I was reading the question was that this beekeeper is in Florida. So it wasn't that, you know, they were up North and it got really cold outside and it solidified this gel. It was, you know, they were in pretty mild conditions here in Florida and it's still solidified. And so, um, you know, that's kind of where the questioner was also coming from as well. Yeah. You, so it's no surprise to me that they're in a warm climate and they're getting this right. kind of reaction, right? Maybe it's just from the heat down here, the time of year they used it, but but still, you know, I would argue that you definitely got to check varroa populations afterwards. And that right there is the best mm -hmm. test for did it matter that this stuff dried or not? All right. So the third question we have. So Dr. Cameron Jack, we've had him on as a host. We've had him on as a guest. He's just an amazing person. And he was one of your PhD students and he did a study on oxalic acid. Um, we've had some uh, we've had some listeners who have gone through and they've read his uh first previous study. And so they're wondering, you know, are there any updates on Cameron's oxalic acid study? Is there anything else that's kind of in the works or, or let us know what, what's the update? What's going on? Yeah. So, um, Dr. Jack, so I'm going to just refer to him as Cameron from henceforth. He, he, part of his PhD work was focused on oxalic acid. We, as you mentioned, Amy, we've had him on this, uh, podcast before talking about that OA work. We've already had two papers published and the first paper, paper dealt with using oxalic acid during periods that you create brood breaks in your colonies by caging the queen. So that paper has been published. We can make sure and link to that paper in the show notes that you can read all about it. He did a second study, conducted a second study where he showed, you know, the, the labeled rate, I believe at the moment is one gram treatment three times, right? Maybe a week mm -hmm. apart or something like that. I forget. Again, it doesn't matter what I say. It matters only what's on the label. So if you guys are questioning me, make sure you look at the label. But he also looked at two and four gram rates and found that essentially the label rate did not work. It did not, it did not give you the desired level of control that you wanted. And instead two and four grams were definitely the label that not that were definitely the level that achieve the kind of control that you would hope to achieve from 08. Of course, that's not a labeled rate. I cannot tell people to use that. In fact, I have to tell people not to use it. You have to you follow the label, the label rate, et cetera. But Cameron is trying to build upon that research and develop data that we hope could be used to inform label changes on oxalic acid moving forward. We would like to see it, its label changed to a rate that actually works. 
And so some of his follow-up studies are looking at that kind of upper level, that four grams and asking, well, does this impact bees and colonies? If I apply it, does it impact bees? What level of control can I expect with four grams seasonally? And then what's the best way to apply it? Would it need to be applied every three days, every five days, every seven days, et cetera? All of those projects and the data analyses are ongoing. So I, I don't really have results that I can share. But again, I want to stress that that's not currently the label rate. So it would be an illegal application of this product in the colony. What I will reemphasize yet again is that we're generating these data. Cameron's generating these data for the purpose of, we hope, informing a label modification so that we can know an appropriate dose to use to kill mites, protect mm -hmm. bees, and it, for, for it to be a beneficial use. And that's what he's doing. And we hope the moment he has some of these data out and published, we'd have him back on the podcast to elaborate on some of those things that he's testing. But I know a lot of other people are looking at OA in so many different ways, using on shop towels and all kinds of other ways. And there's just a suite of OA data being published at the moment, but that's kind of Cameron's contribution to these uh, questions surrounding the use of OA. Yeah, for sure. As far as, you know, the, so this is a little bit of a different topic, but as far as like changing label rates, I mean, what does that process even look like? How long, generally speaking? <laughs> I mean, it seems like it's going to take forever, right? <laughs> well, we'd heard rumors that they were, they, the folks who changed the label were open to modifying to at least potentially a two gram application, but, right. but that's currently slowing down. And, and it, it basically, among other things, requires the people who hold the, the licensure or, or create the label, you know, the, the product originator, as it were, to work with the governing body, in this case, the EPA, to inform that label change. And it's not as easy as saying, oh, we've got these data, you need to go change it. There's right. actually a process involved and they need data beyond even maybe what we're producing. So unfortunately, it takes longer than I think, uh, you know, kind of any of us want it to, but it's just kind of where it is. It's just kind of where it is. All right. Well, there you go. That is the update on Cameron's oxalic acid study. So we're we're happy that even after his um, PhD work that he's still with us here at the lab. So fortunate to have him. All right, listeners, if you have any other questions, we are happy to take them through our email or you can send us a message on one any one of our social media pages. Thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. For more information and resources on today's episode, check out the Honeybee Research Lab website at ufhoneybee.com. If you have questions you want answered on air, email them to us at honeybee at ifas.ufl.edu or message us on social media at ufhoneybeelab on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. This episode was hosted by Jamie Ellis and Amy Vu. This podcast is produced and edited by Amy Vu and Sarah Sowers. Thanks for listening and see you next week.